from verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so, I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham, Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the sons that Sarah bore him, When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Is there grace for me? in my failings, in my frailty, and in my weaknesses? Is there grace for me? It's perhaps one of the most haunting questions of our day and age. Is there grace for me? 
And the culture and the world around us answers with a definite no. No, there isn't grace for you. Not when you get it wrong. Not when you mess up. Not when you said or did things that we don't like. But it's a question that the God who made you and loves you answers with a definite and resounding yes. Yes, there is grace for you. You see, what we get in the Bible is not a list of a whole load of stuff that we're to to unthinkingly believe as people, but the Bible gives us a window into reality, an insight into life and how to rightly interpret and understand life and our experiences in it. And it's why stories like from the life of Abraham that we've been working through uh, at the moment at church uh, are so helpful to us because we can relate to them because they, they ring true to our experience of life, don't they? And they help us see what, knowing, uh, what real life knowing God looks like in real situations that we find ourselves in. You see, what we have as Christians is not just like knowing stuff about God as if, as if he's something to study or understand more or something that could be taught in, in school or something, but we, we get an encounter with God in life's, on our life's way. And so as we read these stories, we're really getting a taste of what it looks like and feels like to live with and for God. And today... So reassuring that the answer to, is there grace for me, is yes, there is. There is grace and grace and yet more grace. So Annalie read for us the first of two of four little episodes that we're looking at today. So I'm going to read a little bit more of the story later on. And in these four episodes, they're all drawn from Abraham's time. He's moved south, if you see, in verse 1 of chapter 20. He's been living 25 years in Hebron, we've seen, in kind of recent weeks. And after 25 years there, he's now moved south, chapter 20, verse 1, to what we come to see as Philistine country. It's this place between the land of promise that Abraham's been promised by God and Egypt, the great superpower of the day. And Abraham ends up in this small royal town called Gerar. Uh, and later on, he, he settles in a place called Beersheba. And he probably moves down here because it's good grazing land for his cattle. He knows he's quite wealthy. He's got lots of animals and stuff. And there's good land for, for them to, to graze on. Now, what happens in this, in this time down south is a variety of different things. And the thread that ties all of these different experiences and the four that we're going to look at to get today are this. That there is grace for us. In just the way we need, and at just the time we need. There is grace for us in just the way we need, and at just the time we need. And these little episodes sparkle with the grace of God, all in their own different way. Um, way. And now listen, when we talk about the grace of God, it doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens in your life. It doesn't mean that you never, ever sin or or struggle with sin again. It doesn't mean that you're spared from all the consequences of things that you've done and and the negative consequences that can reverberate throughout life. But it does ultimately mean, by God's grace, we get so much better than we deserve. And as we walk a similar life of faith to Abraham and each of us in our own unique circumstances and our own unique situation and, and the stuff that we're walking through at this very moment, then I hope this will help us to see that there is grace for us. There is grace for you. There is grace for you in just the way you need it and at just the time that you need it. So so the first um, kind of episode, uh, we see this, that when you battle sin again, God's grace hems you in. 
So from our default, uh, mine certainly is, and I expect this from most of you, from talking to, to many of you, I know this is the case, uh, our default belief and response when we see our character flaws bubble to the surface yet again, or, or we lose a battle with that same old sin yet again, our default is to believe that this time is one too many for God. I've pushed him too far this time. I've had my share of grace, and, and that can't go on forever. So this time I've stepped beyond his grace, so I don't deserve this anymore. But that's not how God relates to us in his grace. And we see it in, in Abraham's experience. He moves to this new place, uh, and he relies on the same old tricks that we've seen before. He's, as I said, he's in Gerar. This is like this royal town where this guy called Abimelech is the king. And what you've got on this day is you've got lots of these kind of little um, king, well, these kings kind of ruling over these small regions and these small areas in the shadow of the great superpowers like Egypt. And so Abimelech is one of these kind of small kings around. Uh, it's, it's a bit like, I guess you could say, we've got the mayor of West Midlands, who's kind of the biggest deal around this part, but he's not like the biggest deal in the world at, at large, but, but around here, he's quite important. Uh, and so when Abraham moves into, uh, into Gerar and into Abimelech's kind of kingdom, um, which in the land of, of the Philistines, he figures, just like he did 25 years before in Egypt, I know what's going to happen here with my wife. They've got no fear of God in this place. They're going to kill me so they can get to Sarah and take her as a wife. So he rolls out that old plan again. Sarah, we're going to say that you're my sister. Remember how well it worked last time. <laughs> Let's go with that again. And the story unfolds. Those of you who are here, when we saw it before, exactly the same, basically, uh, as in Egypt. Abraham and Sarah lie, uh, and that leads to this powerful man taking Sarah into his harem. Uh, and the Lord intervenes before he can sleep with her or commit any serious sin. Uh, first, he intervenes by an illness coming into Abimelech's household, but then also here through a dream to, to Abimelech. And his response, this king, he acts more righteously than Abraham. He's meant to be the man of God here. He confronts Abraham on his lie. He returns Sarah to him, and then he brings Abraham many gifts and possessions by way of restoration. So Abraham gets even richer. And then finally, at the end of this little episode in chapter 20, Abraham plays his role. and He prays for Abimelech, and the blessing kind of comes as the disease and illness is taken away. And his household can, can conceive again. Now, what, what's notable, I think, in, in, in this little story is how God's grace hems in both Abimelech and Abraham. Abimelech, by keeping him from sinning greatly, by sleeping with Sarah before he realizes what's going on. But also Abraham, by keeping him from the consequences of his faithless and foolish schemes yet again. What if Sarah here, became pregnant by Abimelech. They're just on the verge, we'll see the second, second episode, of the, of the promise of this son they've been waiting for for decades, being delivered on. This promised son to come through Abraham and Sarah. And what, instead of that, but because of Abraham's scheming, she ends up pregnant with Abimelech's son, this pagan king, and she's bearing, bearing his son. Instead, what a mess that would be. But God's grace hems us in, even when we battle and lose the battle to the same old sins. It's happened many times in my life, I'm sure, but there's one very clear, clear moment that stands out for me that I remember regularly, where God's grace so evidently hemmed me in from a totally destructive and life-changing path that I was pursuing 
in, uh, of sexual sin. And God in his grace said, this far and no further. And quite literally hemmed me in despite myself. And kept me from so much destruction and pain. This is God's grace in our battle with sin. You know, some really smart scholars who kind of read about this stuff and write about it all the time. I read this week that they think this story probably isn't true, but it's just kind of like being made up from the earlier story and repeated again. Because they say, well, surely someone would be stupid enough to make the same serious mistake twice. I just think, really? (laughs) Have you ever reflected on your own life for even five seconds or seen the lives of others? We do all the time, don't we? In fact, this sin is passed down from generation, as it often is. And a short while later, if we've carried on in the story, Genesis 26, we see Isaac, Abraham's son, tells exactly the same lie in exactly the same place to, you guessed it, exactly the same person. And somehow he falls for it. (laughs) I don't know how, but he does a second time. Look, here's the outrageous thing. Despite Abraham's folly and sin yet again, He prospers, and he is blessed. He gets wealthier when it's totally not deserved. It's outrageous. Grace is good things for bad people. It is good things for bad people. We were were talking as a team this week as we kind of talked through and studied this together, and we talked about how much we struggle with this. How much it it gets us up and we don't like it because we want bad people to get bad things, don't we? And in the culture around us, that's what happens. And and, and the culture that comes down so hard and so self-righteously on anyone who steps over a line, even if that line was just drawn yesterday. We struggle so much, don't we, with grace? And we see it in action, if we're honest. Why is that? Why do we so struggle with grace? Well, I guess it, in part, a big part, I think it's got lots to do with pride. It's got lots to do with us feeling better than others. Listen, if we don't like grace, we're really going to struggle with Jesus and with Christianity. Because that's just what he's got in bucket loads. And if you realize that this is what you personally desperately, desperately need, well, then you're in exactly the right place. This is what I need. Abraham tripping up over the same old sins, the same old wrongs, and encountering the grace of God yet again in it is ultimately reassuring for me. It's not just me that struggles with what feels like intractable sins, things which seem to trap me and get me again and again, and there is grace for me. In just the way I need it, and at just the time I need it, there's grace for us. And you battle with sin again and again and again. And secondly, when you are blessed beyond measure, it is a gift of God's grace. How often do you pray for something? Maybe pray for something for a long time. You get what you prayed for, and then you forget it straight away, and you move on. 
I do that all the time. When we receive good gifts from our Heavenly Father, when God delivers on his promises in our lives, when we see evidences of God's grace and his kindness and his generosity to us, let's be people who stop, who spot what God's doing, who call it out, who, who even share it with one another and express our thanks and our praise for God. Look, look down with me at uh, Genesis chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. This is a massive moment for Abraham and Sarah. It's what they've been waiting for. About 25 years ago, before this, God promised a son to Abraham. And here the son is. He's been born to Abraham as a 100-year-old man and his wife Sarah as a 90-year-old woman. It's an absolute miracle of God's grace. And, and it's not lost on Abraham and Sarah here. He's given the sign of the covenant on the eighth day as, as this son is circumcised, this physical marker that, that marks him out as, as, a, as a child of the promise of God. That, you know, this boy is the seed of the promise. He's the one through whom, the offspring through whom God's plans and purposes will be worked out. And so this is such a happy moment for them. And this, this little text is just filled with, with laughter and smiles and joy. The baby is called Isaac, meaning he laughs. And Sarah says, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Remember Sarah, the one who we've seen in previous weeks, this cynical, mocking, unbelieving laughter, this kind of scoffing laughter. Well, God has turned that into a joyous, wide-eyed, delightful, happy, contagious laughter of thankfulness to God and all he has done. God has redeemed and turned around that laughter that now it's worship and not rebellion. And so on the day that, um, Abra- um, on, on the day that Isaac is weaned, verse 8, Abraham throw, throws a great feast to celebrate God's grace and God's kindness. That the timing may frustrate us. God's timing may even cause us to doubt at times, but God is always good for his word. And God is always ultimately good to us as his people. And our life experiences, if we'll stop and reflect, are punctuated throughout with these moments and these events of God delivering on his promises by his grace, with God giving us good things. Sometimes they're small, everyday things, just little bullet prayers that haven't even been vocalized, but we've said in our heart and, and they're answered in a, in, a, in a moment. Sometimes they're massive big life moments where we just like stand back and God, you delivered there. It is good for us to spot these things, to stop and celebrate these things as we work, uh, walk our, our, our journey through life of faith. It's good for us not to become functional atheists, people who forget about God or don't think of or believe in God in the day-to-day of life. And it's good for us to help each other to do that in the church. People who pause and spot evidences of God's grace, who call it out in one another's lives, who regularly share answers to prayer, both small things and big things, who encourage each other on life's way with stories of God's grace and him delivering on his promises to his people. You know, the things that we celebrate, the things we laugh about together are really significant. Remembering that our blessings and our victories, every single one of them is of God's 
grace because there is grace for us in just the way we need and at just the time we need. Well, our third, the left show, so just working through these fast because there's four of them, will show us that when you walk through hardships, God sustains you by his grace. And this, this third little episode after, after the move south is again a repeat of something that's gone before. So let me read from verse 9 of chapter 21, and we'll just we'll pick it up. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Haggai, set them on her shoulders, and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob, or the child began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This picks up the thread of, um, of the story of Abraham's biggest failure and sin in his life back in chapter 16. He slept with Hagar, um, who was his slave, and had this son Ishmael to try and get the promise of God and the blessing to come through him. And when that all kicked off, originally, pregnant Hagar was sent off into the desert by herself, rejected and, and mistreated and sent off to fend for herself in the desert. But the Lord brought her back. And we saw that a few weeks ago, 14 years later, and the plan is still wreaking havoc in, 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 in family life, as God promised it would for generations to come. Uh, and God is still present in his grace, even whilst it's a real mess, quite frankly. You see, God's grace doesn't mean everything gets magically cleaned up. It doesn't mean we never face any consequences for, uh, for, for our failings and our sins. This situation continues to be a mess, and yet God is faithful through it. And God is faithful in it. What happens is, as Isaac is born, the expected sibling rivalry kind of kicks off and, and, and gets going. And Ishmael mocks Isaac. His name means he laughs. Yeah, he's a laughing stock, you know, ha, 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 mock, mock, mock. He kind of, a play on words of his name. There's this hint of jealousy in what Ishmael's doing. But also, Ishmael is making himself an opponent of the plans and purposes of God and God's promises here. And that is no small thing. Later in the Bible, it says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac, who is the people of God at this time. 
And Sarah can't stand it. And so she again persuades Abraham, listen, send Hagar and Ishmael packing. And, and as harsh and as distressing as it is, ultimately Hagar and Ishmael here represent the way of flesh and not the way of the promise. They represent the way of man and not the way of God. They represent the way of slavery and not the way of freedom. And so their, their life journey must take them on a path away from Abraham. And so again, Hagar finds herself out in the desert, wandering in the harsh conditions with just her son. Except by this time, um, Ishmael is about 17 years old. And as they wander in the desert, their water supply runs out, and it's really looking ominous. It's, uh, it seems like Ishmael probably let his mum have the lion's share of the water. And so he seems to get heat stroke or something in this hot and hostile conditions. And he becomes so ill and so dehydrated that he's, he's sobbing like a little child. I don't know if you've ever been like the illest you've been, and basically you do kind of... You go into fetal position and sob like a little child, don't you? That's what's going on here. He's on death's door. And Hagar sees what's going on, so she kind of drags her son and just places him under like this little bush, kind of leaving him for dead, basically, and just retreats away, not bearing to see her son die in these circumstances. Subtly tragic moment, both of them sobbing. Just at the end. But verse 17. God heard the boy crying. If you remember, Ishmael means God hears. And God heard. And just like when Hagar was desperate in the desert, desert before, God acts here to restore and to refresh and to strengthen. God says, listen, do not be afraid, Hagar. I'll keep the promise I made to you, and your boy will become a great nation. Look up and see, Hagar, there's a well of water that I have provided for you. And so Hagar and Ishmael drink deeply from this water, the, the, uh, this well that the, the, the Lord provided for them in the desert, and they were refreshed, and, and he grew, and he becomes an archer, and he marries a wife, and the story goes on. Now, one thing that struck me this week as, um, as, 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 as I was reading this is that there's this little theme that runs through the Bible of people being in a desert, being ready to die, curling up under some tree or some plant. And what does God do? God draws near to restore and to refresh every single time. The desert in, in the Bible, in the kind of the, the imagery of the Bible, represents the, the harshness and difficulty of life in this world far from God. Someone else in the Bible describes it as life under the sun. It's like this oppressive heat that you can't escape from. Uh, and we can get in that kind of place in life for different reasons, where we may feel it is the end of us, and we can't cope, and we can't go on. And yet God always draws near to us in his grace to refresh and restore us. Whether it was pregnant Hagar by the spring because of her experience of trauma and abuse. It was trauma and abuse that put her in the desert. And God drew near to her at spring. Or Ishmael here, because of his own sin, but also the sins of others against him, he ends up in, in a desert situation and, 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 and the Lord comes to him to restore and refresh. Or, or you think of Elijah, those of you who know his life story, who escapes to the desert just discouraged and exhausted and overwhelmed after serving God faithfully and fleeing for his life for doing so from his enemies. And God comes and bakes him some bread and gives him some water and gives him some sleep. Or you've got Jonah. 
who sits under a tree outside of the city out in the desert in self-righteous anger and bitterness at God's grace to others. And there might be other examples too, I'm sure, but those came to my mind. We would always rather, wouldn't we, take a bypass on life in the desert. We'd always look for the route round or, or whatever else, but sometimes God leads us into and through deserts in life. Someone described it to me like this, picking up on the, uh, the famous kids' storybook. Those of you who are parents will notice, well, we're going on a bear hunt. Uh-oh, here's a desert situation in life. We can't go over it. We can't go round it. We've got to go through it. And sometimes it's like that. Jesus leads us that way. And each and every time we find ourselves walking through a desert in our life situation, whatever reason it is that's put us there, whatever that desert looks like, and it's hard and it's hostile and we feel desperate, we might just feel like we want the world to swallow us up. God draws near in his grace. And he comes to refresh. And he comes to restore. He places these little wells of water along the way, these little oases in the desert, these little pit stops for our soul that renew and refresh us and give us strength to walk the path laid out for us again. So, yeah, we have to go again in the desert and through the desert, but, but we can go until the next little oasis or the next little well or the next little pit stop, and then he'll refresh us again, and then we go again. We just need to see where God's doing that and stop to be strengthened to rest, to take a drink, to be, to be fed, to be renewed and restored. I think, I think for Hagar and Ishmael, this well of water was probably there all along. And in their desperation, and just, you know, like, I don't know, sometimes your vision just goes, doesn't it, when you're in a difficult situation. They just don't see it. And so, verse 19, the Lord has to raise their vision to see the water of refreshing and the water of life that he is providing for them. He says, hey, God, do you see what I'm giving you here? Do you see how I'm providing for you? Jesus can sustain us and he can refresh us in life's deserts because he has walked through the desert of life himself. And he managed to walk that difficult path in faithfulness to God's by the power and the strength of the Spirit and trusting in and being faithful to God all the way. So where, he, where, where we are weak, he is strong. And he can strengthen us, and he can restore us, and he can refresh us by his grace. What are the desert situations that you're walking through? And in those desert situations, where is the Lord providing these little oases, these little pit stops, these little water bubbling up in the desert of his grace and his love and his care. Come and drink from them. Be refreshed, be restored, be strengthened again for there is grace for us in just the way we need and at just the time we need. And the final, the fourth way there is grace for us, is that when you live as a stranger in the world, the eternal God is with you by his grace. 
I've gone for really true things rather than really pithy and memorable things this week. That isn't lost on me, but they're true, okay? And here's the, here's the final little episode of, of Abraham. And, uh, and he, he swears this oath, and I'm going to read it in a moment. He makes this treaty with Abimelech and, and his army general over these rights of access to, uh, to a well. So let's read from verse 22 at the page, uh, bottom of page 21. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to, my children, uh, show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham bought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven new lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, which means well of the seven or well of the oath, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So here, Abimelech recognizes God is with Abraham in everything he does, just like Pharaoh recognized that God was with Abraham in Egypt before uh, and, and sees his blessing. And uh, Abraham makes this move to Beersheba, which is in the same region, and he secures at least some temporary security by getting access rights to this well, which for us doesn't sound like a big deal, but for them back then, big deal because you've got to feed all your livestock and all of this, and, and so you need a supply of water. And so this is his security. This is his future secured and certain as he gets access to this well. This is his income stream for life. It's securing his dream job. And so he settles down somewhat. And he enjoys the time, stability, and blessing. He puts some roots down. In fact, he plants a tree. And you don't really plant a tree when you go on a camping holiday because you're going to be moving on next week. That shows us a certain amount of kind of a little bit of, of sticking around here. But the key of this last episode is in the, right at the end, verses 33 and 34, and these two things that are put side by side. 33, you've got the eternal God and Abraham calling on his name. Remember, we've seen this a few times. Abraham's done this in his life. He's called on the name of the Lord in different places. And that is a public declaration. It's a witness. It's a, it's, it's a testimony of who God is and what he's done for his people. And so you've got the eternal God, the everlasting God, and, and Abraham proclaiming his name to people around at that time. The contrast in 34 is with Abraham staying in the land of Philistines for a long time. Now, staying sounds to us more settled than it really is. But another word for it, a bit of an old word, would be sojourn. Sojourn. And that's someone living somewhere that is not really their home. That's someone kind of temporarily somewhere, even if for an extended time. Maybe it's like a, a, one of these refugee camps that pops up and people are there for a time, but it's not really where they're going to stay for a long time. It's not really where they belong. And so Abraham is living as a foreigner in the land of the Philistines. He's living in a passing sense, and it's fragile. It's an I don't belong kind of life that he has here. 
And whilst he has this kind of temporary kind of passing through, I don't belong kind of life, he calls on the name of the Lord, who is the everlasting God, who is the eternal God, who is sure and certain and secure. And listen, this is the defining theme of Abraham's life. He is a stranger and an exile in this world. It is not his home. He's traveling through. Even the physical land that he was promised by God, he knows is not his ultimate destination and his ultimate land. He is en route and looking forward to his final heavenly home. And as he, as, as he does so, and as he walks that path, he trusts in the eternal God who is always at home. The God who is always faithful and true. The God who is never caught up in the situations of this life. He was never overwhelmed or overcome by things that happen in, 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 in the world. But the God who draws near in his grace to sustain and to keep his people through these situations. I read a lovely line in a book this week. It says this. He wraps your sojourning in his foreverness. He wraps your sojourning in his foreverness. The God of eternity caring for his servants in time and looking out for our everyday needs. There is grace for us in just the way we need it at just the time we need it. We too, as people of God, are strangers and exiles in this world. We're never truly at home, however much we might put some roots down in a particular place. We're never really ultimately settled. We're always kind of passing through fragile, kind of not quite belonging here type of people, always taking steps on our journey of faith to our true and eternal home. And we too sometimes walk a very difficult path. But it is always a path of blessing as the people of God. And it's a path of faith. As we walk through a world that's not our own. And in these places that are often very difficult. Actually, often our faith grows. As we live by faith in the promise and the plans of God. And every step of the way, whether it's Blessed days and good steps and easy times and one good thing after another. Whether it's just step down after step down after step down into dark and deep valleys that we don't see the end of and we don't see ourselves coming out of anytime soon. There is grace for us in just the way we need and at just the time we need. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have lived the lives, the life that we live. You have experienced the type of things we experience. You have been in literal physical desert situations and you've been in many desert experiences of life and many wildernesses and difficult and harsh and lonely places. So Jesus, you know it and you get it and you know us and you get us. And thank you that you have grace for us. You have grace for us in our sin yet again. You have grace for us in our struggling and our suffering and in our hardship. You have grace for us and given us good things. 
And Jesus, you have gone ahead of us to our heavenly home and you're calling us on and you have grace for us in that. Thank you. I pray that we would lift up our eyes to see where your grace is in our lives. I pray that we would drink deeply from what you give to us this morning. I pray that we'd help one another to point one another to these things, to remind one another of these, of these things, to celebrate things together and to feed and nourish one another with your grace. Please, would you help us to walk faithfully with you and not to walk away from you because as hard as it is to walk through harsh deserts with you, it is much harder to walk through harsh deserts without you and without your grace. Lord, as we're prone to wander from you, please keep us. Please keep us on the straight and the narrow path. It isn't easy, but leads to eternal life, we pray. And please keep us each step of the way. Pray it so that you might have glory and be famous. And we pray that we might be sustained and kept. And in the end, we might have joy evermore. Amen.